Hey, it's Kathy. I'm so excited because, drumroll please, doors are officially open to my program, The Abundance Method. I have been wanting to put this program out in the world for two and a half years. I've been working on it behind the scenes, and this is my signature program. This is the program that is going to teach you the method, the framework for how to become a master manifester in your life. Why is that? Because everything is vibration. We live in a world that is atomic. That means the world is made of atoms, which is energy. 99.9% of every atom is energy and less than 1% particle. So in order for us to manifest in our life, we need to become the highest vibe possible and to sustain that. This program is going to show you how to meditate and how to set your day on the right track so that you have a practice that can help you project your amazing energy into the world, which will bend the 3D, which will help you manifest in ways that you won't even believe. This is a transformative live 10-week program. It is designed to help you on this journey of spiritual awakening. It's going to give you tons of tools. I'm going to show you how to change your energy, master the manifestation once and for all, This is the first program of its kind. We're actually trademarking all of this framework because it is something that is so unique. And I think you're going to be so excited about learning it. Also, there are some bonuses right now. If you sign up before May 10th, you'll be getting a physical abundance box. Plus, you're going to get an exclusive podcast so that you can be listening to this program. If you can't make the live Zoom calls, we can give it to you on a track so that you can be listening to it like you do a podcast. Also, you're going to get a pack of 10 meditations from me. And you're going to be getting a training that I just gave a workshop called Permission to be Rich, one of the best workshops I've ever done, which you will love. And there is a platinum level to this program. If you choose the platinum level, not only do you get extra coaching calls with me, you also get extra mentor support, but this is really cool. You also get a retreat included. My retreats are normally $3,000. You will get the retreat for free included. Plus, You will get a front row seat at that retreat because you will be on the platinum VIP track at the retreat. All of this is here for you. I'd love to see you in this program. I want to see you tapping in, turning on to that electricity within you so that you can find your way to the life that you were born to manifest for yourself. You can join us now at kathyheller.com slash join. I cannot wait. Get on in there. See what all the excitement is about. It's going to be so much fun. Now me, future me, now us, future us. All these spaces influence our choices. Expanding our awareness to see this bigger picture, I think is like, is the seismic change that really shifts how the world operates. I believe that the opposite of depression, it's not happiness, it's purpose. I believe that every single person has something unique to contribute to the world. And that's why I wanted to create a show called Don't Keep Your Day Job. Don't Keep Your Day Job is about figuring out what it is that you were here to do in this world that only you can do to make the world more whole, more beautiful, and to stop selling yourself short, and to stop sitting it out, and to figure out how to take this thing you love, whether it's art or music or screenwriting or dance or baking, and how do you weave this thing that you love into a life that you get to contribute, that you get to do what you love full time, because it's not just about business. It's about contribution. It's about meaning. That is what we seek that is what we truly want. And you absolutely are here to serve the world. And I want to help you figure out just how much value you have inside of you. And every single week, we're going to be talking to people who have something to add to help you get out of your own way, to help you be more successful, to help you be the truest expression of you. My name is Kathy Heller. I'm so glad that you're here. Let's dive in. Thanks to Undercover Tourists for supporting Don't Keep Your Day Job. If you are planning a theme park vacation, save significant time and money by going to undercovertourist.com slash dreamjob. 
Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. Hope you guys had a good weekend. Maybe you enjoyed the Super Bowl. I don't know if your team won or lost, but I hope that you got to spend good quality time with your friends and have some fun snacks. We went away to Vegas. I had to speak um, at a conference and leading up to the conference, I was nervous. It was um, a big crowd. It was about 1,400 people. And I thought to myself, oh gosh, you know, all my imposter syndrome came up. How's it going to go? Are they going to connect with what I'm saying? Am I going to get nervous? Will I forget what I need to say? Can you imagine me thinking I'm going to forget? But yeah, I mean, I have the same stuff that you guys have. And I'm so glad I went. I wound up being so relaxed on stage. I wound up loving every second of it. In fact, when I got up on stage, I did two talks. And the second day, as I walked on stage, the the sound guy told me, your mic's not going to work. You need to stall for a second. So I, I get up on stage and I say to everybody, stretch your arms out, take a breath, you know, relax. And then I said, uh, my husband says I'm pretty loud, so I probably could deliver the whole speech without a mic. And then, um, you know, they brought me the mic and it was fine. And The audience was a group of very accomplished doctors, plastic surgeons, really accomplished folks. And I just talked to them about what was on my heart, talked about how we live in a time where there's such an empathy deficit, talked to them about resilience. I talked to them about how we have to give ourselves permission to not be perfect and to lean into the authenticity more than anything else. And they got it. And um, it was so great. And I want to do a lot more of that. So if you're listening and you want me to come speak at a conference or something, I want to do a lot more of that this year. I really feel called that that's the next frontier for me. You know, I, I love doing this podcast and I will continue to do it because it is just so awesome and such a gift. But I feel like I get to chill, you know, at home behind my microphone. And I think it's really important for me to step out and stretch my own comfort zone and get up in front of a thousand, two thousand, three thousand people and on and on. So I'm going to be doing more of that. Also, we have a couple of cool things coming up. I'll be announcing the dates and where you can get tickets soon, but we're going to be doing a, a conference, a two-day conference in LA called the Arrive Summit. It'll be two days here at the end of March. I'll be announcing where you can get tickets to that very soon because tickets will sell out. And also, I'm doing a retreat at my home. March 15th through the 18th. It's going to be for 18 women only. And um, in the future, we might open it up to men and women, but right now it's just women, 18 women, super intimate. Uh, we'll do a breathwork session. We'll spend a couple days really working on healing and whatever's in the way to help you break through. So you can really step back into alignment with yourself and and come home, come home to really who you are and what you came to this world to do and turn the volume up on that inner knowing so your soul can lead. We sort of split it up between a day and a half working on that healing, powerful healing and a day and a half really strategizing your business. Um, we already have a lot of applications. We'll be taking applications for another week. If you want to apply, you can go to kathyheller.com slash retreats, or you can find the link in my Instagram bio, but I love doing those retreats and I can't wait for the next one. Also, Go ahead and pre-order my book if you haven't already, because I'm going to be doing a 12-week book club where I'll be showing up once a week on Instagram Live and 
I'll be talking about my favorite takeaways from each chapter. There's 12 chapters, so we'll do it for 12 weeks. And I'll be answering some questions live about every chapter and sort of processing it with you. And it'll be free. You can use the link in the show notes if you want to sign up and get all the details about that free book club. And you'll get that as a bonus. You'll get all the info and the link to join us. And you'll sort of be sent takeaways from every single share. If you want to be in the inside of that, just uh, buy the book and uh, you can use the link in the show notes to sign up and we can get you involved in that. Okay. Now on today's episode, I'm really happy because we're joined by a very special, awesome human being, Yancey Strickler. He's an author, entrepreneur, and speaker, but he's also the co-founder and former CEO of Kickstarter. He's so insightful. You need to read his book if you haven't already. It's called This Could Be Our Future, A Manifesto for a More Generous World. And we're going to talk about all of this in this episode. Plus, we're going to talk about this fascinating concept that he created called bentoism. It's the belief that our self-interest isn't solely defined by what we want and need right now. And he has this really cool structure to help you make those hard decisions and still stay true to your core values. Yancey also co-founded the artist resource, The Creative Independent, and the record label eMusic Selects. It's no surprise he's been profiled in Wired, The New York Times, New York Magazine, and he was named a young global leader by the World Economic Forum, one of Fast Company's most creative people, Fortune's 40 Under 40. He's such an honest person, and I'm so awed by the amount of integrity he's carried with him in every single endeavor. You'll absolutely love him. So without further ado, please welcome the one and only Yancey Strickler. I'm so excited today that you are here. Thank you for making the time. Yeah, my pleasure. You are just a island unto yourself in terms of who you are. But then what you've done is you've brought the whole world to the island. Can you just tell us a little bit about the backstory of how you came to be? Yeah. Well, I grew up in Southwest Virginia and Appalachia. So like in the mountains, my parents split when I was three and my mom and I first lived alone in like you know, low-income housing for a few years. And then my mom remarried and we moved out to this farm where my stepfather lived. And it was in the middle of nowhere and there were no neighbors. You know, I'd work for the farm, but I basically just read books. I just read books. And in that, just like had a great thirst and hunger for the world that was all always kind of in conflict too with how I was growing up, which was as evangelical. And so the churches I went to would like sort of speak about the world as being wicked but I was reading every book I could find and just like finding the world fascinating. But uh, the real breakthrough moment growing up was when I was 15, I got accepted into a math school. And there I was around like other people like me for the first time. And, and in particular, made a couple friends whose like parents had moved to the country from other places. They were artists. And that was like my first moment of what I was reading about in books as the rest of the world, like really experiencing it for the first time. Just that level of exposure just shifted my mindset. So I, I went to school at a place called William & Mary in Virginia and studied writing and cultural Great studies. School. I became a townie. I worked as a mover. I worked doing tech support. I was the night manager of a day's end. And then I graduated, didn't know what to do. And then my, my friend who I made at the magnet school called me and said he and a group of guys were moving to New York City and there was an extra bedroom and like if I could be there by Friday this was like on a Wednesday if I could be there by Friday the room was mine and I said yes so I, I moved to New York like almost immediately after and then there moved in the, into this house with these guys in Coney Island and then and about six weeks later got my first real job and that was 
rewriting entertainment stories so that DJs could read them out loud on the radio. And that was actually a phenomenal, phenomenal job in a way. I mean, it was three and a half years. I ended up getting laid off. But, you know, for someone who loved writing and wanted to be a writer, here I had to deliver like 12 stories a day, all no more than 70 words. And so that was just a tremendous experience. And that, that ultimately like led to me making a living as a music critic for about 10 years. I was a freelance writer making 50 bucks a pop for a review I would write. I had a year where I solely supported myself through those things. I was very broke that year, but it was like living that dream. I'd started a record label. I was like in the creative world of New York, like always on the edges, always the island still, but I was an island and exactly where I wanted to be. Oh, then you have this big idea. What makes you think about Kickstarter? How does this even begin? Well, Kickstarter began with, for me, it began in 2005. There was a, a restaurant in Brooklyn where I was a regular. And there's a guy who worked there as a waiter. And we became friends, Perry. And one day, Perry asked me to hang out and asked me to sign an NDA. And then he told me about this idea he had had a few years before. And, and so Perry had been living in New Orleans in 2000 or 2001 and wanted to throw a concert and was bringing these DJs in from Europe and he was going to have to front like $25,000 to make it happen. He didn't want to own all that risk and, you know, it's not like he was good for it. And so instead he had this thought of like, well, what if I propose the idea for the concert online? People put up their credit cards to buy tickets, but no one is charged unless the show sells out. And so like the notion of crowdfunding, all or nothing, you know, uh, crowdfunding, so we had that idea, but in like 2001, the internet is like very different. You didn't have all these tools where like you could be a post-tech kind of person right. you know, and still use this stuff. And so it was, when we met three years later, he had continued to be chewing on the idea and he'd moved back to New York where he grew up to try to be serious about it. Say like, you know, this, this idea keeps echoing in my mind. I need to do something about it. And then I walked in one day and, and I think I was interesting to him because I mean, we're, we're, very similar people. We immediately got along. Um, but I also, my day job was at a company that had .com at the end of its name. Um, and so we became collaborators. And what was funny is that, you know, Perry's background was a lot of different things, but he was sort of an artist, creative person. And, and I definitely was that. And um, I felt guilty and really uncomfortable about crossing over to the business world. If I think about my life until that point and the culture as I knew it, and I think the culture as it existed was that like you're a creative artistic person or you're a business person and like those lines just don't cross. Yeah, totally. And so for us, like stepping over that line into the business world was scary. Now those walls have come down. So as a business person, you're supposed to read David Lynch's memoir. And as an artist, you're supposed to read Seth Godin. But, I, you know, I grew up the feeling of those lines and divides being much more stark. Yeah. And so we were like, there was a little bit of feeling of like class betrayal. Yeah, to be I totally, totally get that. You know, so we started working on it. We, about a year later, we, we found Charles Adler, another co-founder of Kickstarter. Charles was the designer. But we were three, like, very creative people, very, like, of certain ethos, you know, all, like, don't sell out kind of indie kind of folks. But we couldn't code, and we kept hiring external developers to try to build the site for us that we would talk to, like, 
old gray haired people who would say, this is not going to work. Like this is a bad idea. You can't build a product this way. And our answer was always, well, whatever old man, you know, this is different. And, uh, and it wasn't all the, all that advice was correct. Uh, but so there was like a four year period of perpetually thinking the site was like four months away from launching and it just not happening. And so by the time it did launch in 2009, you know, there was a feeling of relief more than triumph. It being alive was like the first rung of success. Oh, yeah. And so there was a way in which like what happened after that was gravy. But like that struggle to just get it out the door was significant. And in, in particular, Perry and Charles like really just didn't give up. Like I really credit them during those those years for a real dedication, but it was brutal. And, and a lot of what drove us was like fear. It was, this is obviously a great idea. This is totally going to work. Someone's going to do this. If it's not us, it's someone else. And so there, we were sort of driven by that idea of like, there's three people in SF right now doing this. And every time we go to sleep, they're still working, but it's detrimental, but it's also helpful because it's, it's a motivating energy. Yep. Yep. That was the story of the Wright brothers is like other people were trying to do that. You know, they weren't the only ones. They just kept going. And then they were finally, you know, we're, we're the ones that like took off, but everybody was trying. Okay. So then what happened? So you launch it and does it work uh, right away? Are people having yeah, success? Yeah. Well, so a couple things. I mean, one is like we created false scarcity around the product from the beginning. So we, we invented pioneering crowdfunding we knew this could be used for everything. Like we thought like, okay, buy Jenny a prom dress, like get the family out of debt. That could be a project, but we only wanted to be for creative projects because we felt like if the other kind of stuff is there, like an artist is never going to use this. And the other way that we wanted to set the culture early on was that it would not be guilt based because this is about being elevating. Like let's redefine Love that. the relationship people have with raising money, make it something to be proud of. And we also made it so that to the only people that could start a project were people that were personally invited by us. And if you got invited by one of us, one of the three or four of us working on it at the time, you also got five invites to give to your friends. And so getting an invite to do a Kickstarter was like a currency, even before we had any kind of reputation. But the very first project to be funded was, excitingly, was from someone that we didn't know them. We didn't know any of the backers. It was a project called Drawing for Dollars. Mm -hmm. And it said, if you give me five bucks, I'll draw you a picture of something. And it raised $35 from three people. And it was was the fifth day we were live. And it was amazing because like the credit cards transacted, the creator Dark Pony got his money, like it all worked. And it was just validated. And then the, the growth was always like pretty steady from that. But there are a couple interesting things about how we did things early on. One, one is that because of our backgrounds, Perry, Charles, and I said from the beginning that we never wanted to sell out. Like we didn't want to go public. We didn't want to uh, sell the company to some bigger company and cash out. Like from the worlds that we grew up in, you know, if you experience success, you don't use your success to extricate yourself from your group. You don't use your success to like distance yourself from others. You don't exploit it for personal gain. You like, you keep that value in the community. I grew up a Nirvana kid and it's so striking to me, even when I watch it now, like Nirvana Unplugged, they're on MTV. They have an hour and a half on MTV in 1994 at a time when like, that's the best possible placement you can get anywhere. And they use their performance to bring their friends who are in lesser known bands on stage and they just play covers Mm -hmm. of their songs with them. 
right? It's, it's this elevating. And so that is like, that is the essence of being a member of your community. That's beautiful. And so we just always thought, yeah, this needs to be relevant and be meaningful forever. And so that created definitely an ethos that attracted a certain type of person that wanted to work there. And that really got put to a test in an interesting way about three years in, the site was like growing steadily. And then in 2012, for the first time, a project crossed a million dollars in funding. It's called Double Fine Adventure. And it was a video game. And what's crazy is it had launched the day before. And so the Double Fine thing was major internet news. And suddenly, like Kickstarter became just the hottest, the hottest thing on the internet. And suddenly there were projects raising over a million dollars every single week. And we would even see projects raise over a million dollars overnight without showing much of anything. There was so much trust in the platform because of how protective we had been that people were also like very trusting of these projects that were suddenly raising millions of dollars. And the fact that it had already raised this much money was validation for more people to put in. But in the midst of this, we jumped in the way of this money train and, and we instituted a set of rules under a blog post called Kickstarter is not a store where we prohibited photorealistic renderings. We prohibited product simulations where you like are saying something is doing something, but without actually proving it. We required projects to show their physical prototype. We just wrote the statement that like, we want to be grounded in the reality of things. This is not a store and this can't feel like a store. And so we put up these roadblocks and, and barriers intentionally. And I remember that post got 600 comments within just a couple of days, every single comment, a version of F you. Um, and people thought that we were like overreaching, that this was being a nanny state. Um, but we felt like over the longer term, like the, the way it was working wasn't going to play out. And, you know, that sacrifice on our part, because it was, it was correctly read as a sacrifice. People read it as like, whoa, they are going to make significantly less money as a result of this. But we, I realized in that, that it was the sacrifice that made it meaningful that made people believe it, but it gave us several more years of trust to be willing to do that. It reminds me of, there's this great book called The 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing by Jack Reese and Al Trout. It's like written from the early 80s. You can smell the chain smoke on it. <laughs> and there's a, a post in there or a, a chapter in there called The Law of Sacrifice. And it says, you can never ask a customer to give you more without giving up something in exchange. And that companies and people are afraid to give something up. But what they don't realize is that when you do, like you get rewarded in such huge ways that will even outweigh what you sacrificed. But it's that willingness to give something up that, that builds trust. So, you know, I, I think the, oh the, the character of Kickstarter comes from these like choices to not opt for the standard playbook, for us becoming a public benefit corporation. So rewriting our expectations, the company isn't just maximizing for shareholder value, but balancing that with producing a positive benefit to society mm. and, and making investments into things like um, the creative independent, which is a, a, a daily interview and essay, but with an artist about the emotional realities of their life that, you know, makes no revenue, has a full-time staff is like an amazing product. Beautiful. And we create because it fulfills these larger ideals. So, you know, that, that's what makes Kickstarter still unique and it doesn't make things easy forever, right? It still means that you will have, challenging periods and that your values will keep being, being put to the test. But maintaining meaning in a marketplace that's, you know, meaning is hard to come by. It, it takes those kinds of choices yeah. and really that kind of consistency over time. 
Yes, that's so beautiful. And I feel like listeners of our show would be curious to know, and by the way, I can't even ask this question without just reflecting to you just how moved I am by that story because the amount of integrity that went into how you created this is something that we don't hear every single day. And there must be a part of you, I hope, that falls asleep at night and says, because I had the courage to go through those four years where it wasn't working and I kept going back and because I had the courage to care about the artist and because I had the courage to take less money and put out things like that would be roadblocks. Look at how many people's dreams got funded. Like, please tell me you think that sometimes when you fall asleep. It's hard to, it's, I don't know. It's hard to grasp. I mean, the greatest gift I got from Kickstarter other than the experience and like, and I'm such a team person. Like I'm, I'm like, I want to be That's part very of obvious. What I'm, <laughs> yeah. What I miss about Kickstarter is being, you know, just being with everybody. The real gift was like satisfying that part of my ego that wanted to be seen my whole life. You know, that was like where I would turn every conversation into an opportunity to prove that I was special and this like insufferableness that I look at with such compassion and, and shame now, but the beauty, the beauty of Kickstarter for me is it, it scratched that itch enough that I could let it go. And like, the gift I would wish for everyone is to, is to be free of that in that same kind of way. But uh, you've helped so many people like to be able yeah. to take that in. Like you created a platform that helped people fund their dreams. I have a friend who raised over $25,000 for their record with Kickstarter and then was able to have the same producer that Sarah Bareilles had just used on her record because of that. And that mm -hmm. record helped them break into the scene. And then from there, they got a placement on, they had a song on house and they had a song somewhere else. Like it helped them pay their mortgage and helped them actually be an artist. And it led to other things. Like, and that's just one tiny story, right? So, yeah. I mean, you should be so proud of the dreams that you helped to sow. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, I always thought about like, you know, when I, when I ran a small label, like I, I didn't try to keep bands. I would put out their first record and then help them go somewhere else. And I would help bands get to the bigger label. And, and what I saw was like for them signing to a label was a validation moment for their families to say, Oh, it's real. It's not just your impractical idea. And so totally. what I always thought about with Kickstarter is like, if this can carry that same kind of meaning for someone, mm -hmm. and it mm -hmm. really is. It's a, it's a social validation. I've seen it over and over with creators to where it's like, it's the moment where they get to really feel that people love them and care about them. Yeah. And that's that same kind of gift that I think is so meaningful, but you know, I think it could be worth me talking about leaving because I left Kickstarter two and a half years ago and that was very difficult. And so that, you know, maybe, maybe we can get real for a minute, but like, yeah, well, let's get real. I want to ask you another question about Kickstarter. So while you were at Kickstarter, what can you tell us? What can you share with us that you saw work? What do you think you can teach us about what you saw over the years, the campaigns that worked the best? What are some of the things that they had in common? Well, it's funny. I think if we, if we were to watch the videos of like, look at 10 project pages and say, we couldn't see how much money they had raised. I bet we would correctly predict 10 out of 10 who made it and who didn't. Wow, and, I love that. And I think that that prediction would be largely based on the feeling of watching the person in the video and whether or not they seem sincere. And, you know, it's like some limbic part of our brain or something that can wow. sense this. I'm writing it down. It's amazing. There's a gut reaction that you just have 
where you buy someone or you don't. And, and I think that that is so much of it. So, I mean, so obviously that means that video is important, but like how someone looks telling their story and how they choose to tell their story in those first 30 seconds, like I really, I think that would tell you so much. But what's misleading about that though, is that, you know, projects get funded through the network of the creator, through how good they are at the hustle, through how good they are at telling their story, through how well they time their email blasts, you know, leverage their networks, all these sorts of things. And so all that's happening outside of the page. But still, it's like the people that do that well are often the people who do this other thing well, too. Now, what gets complicated about this is that when the platform began to become more professionalized, then you started having like professionally made videos. And then it starts to get a little bit harder to tell, yeah. you know, because you can, companies prove you can spend money uh, to, fake, to fake it, right? Yeah. And so that becomes a little bit more difficult. But for any creator, I think it's like, it's a people are supporting you based on a human connection. Like, yes, maybe they love your voice and the song, but like they are giving you money. It's for you to do something else, but it is like a very personal identity driven kind of relationship. So beautiful. And you, you yeah. referred to it just now, but when Amanda Palmer was here, she said that people are always like, but I did a crowdfunding campaign and I put something out there and she's like, crowd yeah. funding, like first yeah. build the crowd. Like if you don't have a crowd, if you don't have humans that you're already showing up for, if you haven't built that trust and intimacy, if you're not depositing and just being generous and making that yeah. crowd, you're, no one's coming to fund. There is no one. So what have you seen that's helped people build that crowd before they say, hey, would you guys get behind this? Well, it's, it's really, it's that your Kickstarter is not step one of your career. You know, I'm, I'm embarking on a singing career. I'm going to launch a Kickstarter. No. Or even like you're making a short film. I only have an idea. No. Like the farther along you are, the greater your reach. The earlier you are, the smaller your reach will be mm -hmm. just to a core network. But of course, everyone wants to be discovered. They want to grow their audience through everything that they do. So to do that, you have to be farther along in your project. What's interesting is that the same person who's the great artist with the great idea, they might not be the same person who's a good community builder. You know, I'm not a great community builder. I can be lazy about those things. Like that is a special kind of energy and person that you need. Um, so may maybe, you know, once or twice a week, you do a, you know, live chat or you, you expose yourself a bit more, but, but I think ultimately you need to have, especially if you're trying to raise more than like, you know, 15, 20 grand, I think you're probably going to need another person that even if they're just like a partner keeping you accountable, it could just be your, your husband or your wife, yeah. you know, uh, or your kid who's better at the internet than you are. We can't do all these roles uh, on our own. I love that. Such a good point. I just wrote that down. Oh my God, I love this conversation. But before we go on, let's just say a quick thanks to our sponsor. I've been trying to take more vacations with my family lately and something my girls love are theme parks. And I know that planning a vacation is a lot of work. It's overwhelming. It takes up a lot of time and money. But I found out about Undercover Tourist and you definitely need to know about them if you're planning a theme park vacation. With Undercover Tourist, you get the exact same tickets to theme parks you know and love for less and there's no catch. In fact, you can save an average of $100 per ticket to top attractions for your family vacation. Undercover Tourist is an authorized seller with 20 years of quality service and 
A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau, and their Orlando Wait Times app has over a million downloads. It's totally hassle-free. They email the tickets to you and send you physical tickets so you can skip the lines at the gate. There's no hidden fees, and tax is already included. Plus, they have 90-day ticket returns where applicable. So definitely check it out for your next family trip. Undercover Tourist is the trusted name for theme park tickets. Start planning your next theme park vacation now by visiting undercovertourist.com slash dreamjob. That's an additional discount using undercovertourist.com slash dreamjob on top of the big savings already offered through Undercover Tourist. That's undercovertourist.com slash dreamjob. I definitely want to talk about your book, but I want to respect what you just offered to share with us. So I've been doing Kickstarter full-time for about nine years, uh, the last four of which, almost four of which were as CEO. I mean, every year as a CEO, I would get a 360 review and about 20 people would anonymously review me and I would get a 40-page dossier of things people like and don't like about you. Wow. Always hard. And that year, it was particularly challenging. You know, the, the year before, there had been like a little more upheaval than usual and it showed up and people were expressing a feeling a lack of certainty. And so I took this to the board and I said, here this is, as a CEO, here's, here's how I put this in context and why I think things are cool. Uh, but as a co-founder, I read this and I say, is this the right person? I think I am the right person, but like we're at a different stage of the company now. Is this the right person or not? And so that began a conversation with the board and my mm. co-founder and that was hard. And it was during that conversation, there's one day I was going to work. I was standing in my front door and I just physically couldn't lift my arm to open the door. I wasn't really aware of it. I only knew that was happening because suddenly I heard my wife say, what are you doing? And like, we'd already said goodbye that morning. And here I was just still standing in our house by the front door and I was crying. And I just told her, I can't, I can't lift my arm. And yeah, she's like, why, why? And I just said, I can't go be that person today. I felt like as a CEO, you know, I'm sort of like bearing the emotional burden. I'm very much a servant leader. I'm sort of carrying a lot. And, and I'd been like the whole year had just been nothing but me like courting executives. So like having first dates every night with someone I'm trying to woo. So and, exhausting. And I just like, oh my God. Yeah. And so I just reached this, like, I just hit this wall where, I mean, Consciously, I didn't think I was hitting a wall. Consciously, I thought I was like doing better than ever. And I think I was. But yeah, I have this moment where this body just, my body refuses to obey. And that told me that something was wrong. And so that, you know, the, the conversations of the board sort of began accelerating around that point and, you know, made the decision that I would step away. And, you know, the last day of that, you know, I was going to tell the company, we, I have all, we have all hands, everyone gets together in our theater and... And I stood there in front of the company and like, yeah, just gave this two minute speech saying we're a mid-sized internet business in a world of monopolies. Everyone we face, you know, we're in a world where everyone's highly funded, all, all this stuff. And we're like a small boat in a big sea. And, you know, we have to keep raising our expectations for ourselves. And like, I've been a good leader, but you know, we're at a stage where we need a great leader in a different kind of way. And like, this is the moment that happens and people were not expecting it. But they stand up, give me a standing ovation. I walk out the door and then that was it. And, and it was really hard. Um, and I made the decision to like, I wanted to leave the board and I just needed to not think about this stuff anymore. But there became a point where I could reflect and say, you know what, if I think back to those first conversations with this, you know, with Perry, this new friend, and to think like 14 years later, it ends with like me walking out of this room after addressing 150 people that I think the world of, just like 
that's amazing. That's like a movie ending. You know, I feel grateful for this. And why should I ask for anything more of it than what it's already given me? Mm. And so I was expecting that I was just going to like the next day, I was just going to sleep for a month. And instead I woke up with like more energy than I'd felt. And I don't know how long. And I realized it was because I had filtered every choice through like the organization, through the team, through what did others think, what, what's right for the brand, what will our competitors do? And really like putting me in a role of like a observer, guider, but not acting with full agency. Right. And suddenly I woke up and I'm like, I'm hustling for me and my family. And that was exciting. That was empowering. And so I, I decided that I would try to treat myself like I was a company. And so I spent two weeks using like brainstorming things we would use as an executive team to plan the coming year. And I did them for myself. And I like analyzed myself. I filled a notebook with like my strengths, weaknesses, everything I'd ever done, like everything I'd ever imagined doing and spent several days doing that. And at the end came up with like five paths for what should be next for me. And one path was like be a freelance journalist as I'd been before. One path was to be a teacher. One path was to try to make a film kind of thing. One path was to write a book. Fifth was I had a side project at the time and it was that I turned that into a real startup. And um, what I decided to do is I then spent the next week each day pretending that I had one of those jobs. So on Monday, I pretended that I was a freelance journalist. And so I woke up that morning saying, I'm a freelance writer. First thing I got to do today is I got to find my three stories I'm going to pitch. So I like tried to come up with my story ideas. Who would I pitch them to? Tried writing them. But like that whole day, just pretended that's my job. The next day did that for being a teacher. The next day did that for, you know, the film thing. Just how would I do this? What does it feel like? And really, I thought of it as almost like method acting and just trying to let my body tell me what was right. And it, and it was when I spent the day on the book and it was like working on an idea that I've been thinking about for several years, I felt almost immediately in my body that this was the one that clicked, you know, and then again, came up with all these forcing functions said, okay, that was like in September. I was like, if I don't have a book deal by the end of the year, I won't do it. And so like gave myself this push. I have to do this. And I, I met with literary agents and I ended up signing with a literary agent who was most skeptical of me, who I had to convince to work with me uh, because everyone else was just like blowing smoke and I just thought this guy will be honest with me mm-hmm. and uh, ended up being a phenomenal relationship for that reason of just like someone that I can always trust to tell me the truth, if, even if it's what I don't want to hear. And so just, just try to create this forcing function of momentum, try to create these sort of like yes or no moments that would drive me to do more. And even when I signed the book deal, I gave myself exactly one year to write the book because I thought this needs to be a job that's kicking my ass. Yeah. If I, if I get to spend two months taking friends out to lunch, telling them about how I'm writing a book, like this is going to be terrible. This has to scare me. And it, and it did. I mean, the, about a week in, I rented an empty apartment near our house uh, with no internet. I just went there every day. And first month, all I did was read. But like my second day, it was already scary how much deeper into myself I was going than I realized I was going to go. And I know sort of spiraling into a lack of confidence. And a couple of days later, I was lying on the couch complaining about this to my wife saying, I don't know if I can do this. You know, I, I pitched this manifesto that will, that's like, here's what post-capitalism is. Like, we're going to make it happen. And now I'm supposed to write this. I'm like, what the hell did I do? And my wife just got sick of me at that moment. And she looked at me and she said, well, 
whatever it is you need to do to get over this, what you're doing right now is not working for you. And I just realized that like this wondering whether I could do it was just so useless, just like to wonder, to wonder, like how impotent. And it made me think to the story I'd always loved. And it's about in 1966, the Beatles, the same year they released Rubber Soul, they wrote and recorded and released Revolver, and they wrote and recorded Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And it was all in one year, three of the greatest albums of all time, in one calendar year, the Beatles made them all. And that year was also the first time they went on vacation. And when they went on vacation, the Beatles each went their separate ways. And Paul's idea was he wanted to drive across France, Spain, and Northern Africa by himself. He wanted to be alone. But of course, it's Beatlemania, so he can't do that. So what Paul decides to do is he slicks his hair back, he slicks back his mop top, he wears fake glasses, and he grows a mustache. And for those six weeks, Paul's on the road wearing a mustache in this disguise, and he's not recognized. He's just a person. And it ends up being a revelatory experience for Paul. And when he gets back to London, he calls the other Beatles and tells them about it and says, we can't make another Beatles record. We all need the freedom of being somebody else. And this is where the idea for Sgt. Peppers came from. Paul said, we each have to adopt a different identity and not be Beatles and make another record. And so when my wife told me, whatever it is, you have to do something, I had this immediate thought of, I need to grow a mustache. I need to change who I am. Because whereas like the sweet-faced good boy worried about being so daring as to suggest that a significant shift in society was upon us, the version of me with a mustache wouldn't give a shit what people thought. Mm -hmm. And so I did. I grew this mustache because I wanted to look in the mirror and not see myself, to see somebody else and someone that was unafraid. Mm. And so for the first seven months writing the book, I had this mustache and it was a reminder to me to not be myself. It was a reminder of, of how I needed to step into this book and just like to liberate myself from my own story. I mean, everything you're saying is just gold, gold, mic drop. And it's just like ridiculous. Um, so then you write this book, which is called This Could Be Our Future. It's a manifesto for a more generous world. Everyone needs to read the book, but in the meantime... Can you just yeah. tell us what this book is saying? Well, the, the first half of the book is about sort of how we got to now. And it tells a story of how we came to believe that financial value is the only value that mattered. That basically we were once a world ruled by moral values, what's right and wrong, what's meaningful, what's beautiful. And then over time, and really over the last 50 years, we transitioned to a world that's ruled by financial and economic value. And that this happened for very rational reasons, like the measured surpassed the not measured. It's a lot easier to work towards a singular goal like that. And we didn't know how to measure things that were not money, like money was the clearest thing we could point to. But it has really like run us off course. And I cite all kinds of ways why I think that's the case. You know, inequality, climate crisis, decaying social institutions. These are all things that are, you know, lie in this sort of default way of thinking. And so in, in the second half of the book, I try to offer a solution. I'm trying to optimistically and proactively think about how do we go from where we are now and, and use what works to build something better. And so I, I introduce a concept I call bentoism. And so what I do is I say that, you know, the way we think of our self-interest today is we imagine like the hockey stick graph. 
whatever it is that we want, fame, power, love, you know, uh, influence is growing so much that the chart of it, the line just slopes up and to the right. But I had this like eureka moment of realizing that that's just a tiny slice of a much larger picture because each axis on this chart of self-interest keep going. The x-axis measuring time uh, goes from now, then all the way into the future as you go out to the right. And the y-axis measuring self-interest goes from me to us. As our self-interest grows, so do our responsibilities. Like the difference between being single and having kids is enormous. The difference between being a solo entrepreneur and having employees like couldn't be larger. And so whereas we think our self-interest is this tiny slice of a graph, it's actually this much larger universe. And we can carve out four distinct spaces to think about. The space that we think of self-interest as now where the hockey stick graphs live, I call that now me. That's the bottom left of this box. Right next to it, to the right, is future me, the older, wiser version of yourself, the person who made all the right choices, who lived the life of the obituary you wish you could have. Every day, that person becomes real or not real, according to the choices that we make. In the top left of this, there's now us, the people we rely on and who rely on us, our families, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers. And in the top right, is future us, our kids, and everybody else's kids too. So the idea is that every choice that we make has a footprint in all these spaces, now me, future me, now us, future us. All these spaces influence our choices. But today we're functionally blind to everything except for that bottom left, now me corner. We, everything other than that we see as emotional or nebulous, harder to pin down, less rational. We have a hard time making decisions in support of it. But expanding our awareness to see this bigger picture, I think, is like, is the seismic change that really shifts how the world operates. And so I, I call this way of seeing a bentoism, like a bento box, um, because the bento is a you know, Japanese lunchbox named after a word uh, meaning convenience. And the bento has four distinct or five distinct spaces with the lid. So it, a bento lets you carry a variety of dishes, not too much of any one thing. So it's like a healthy, balanced meal always. And the bento also honors the Japanese dieting philosophy of hadahachibu, which says the goal of a meal is to be 80% full. That way you're still hungry for tomorrow. Mm. So the bentoism, the bento box, is the same idea for our values and choices, allowing us to see beyond right now, allowing us to make room for tomorrow, and I think really exposing you to your true self-interest. And so you can use it to define your values, I use it to make every choice in my life now. I, I make decisions asking each part of myself whether it says yes or no. Should I do this? Yes or yes or no? And in that, I, I learn, you know, I just discover how I operate. So just to tell you what's in my bento, based on our conversation, it will make sense to you. But my now me, what is, what is my flow state for now me? It's showing people the matrix. Like when I'm at my best is when I'm connecting the dots and sort of telling people these stories. That is me at my best, my most true self. My future me, the older, wiser version of myself, it tells me two things. It says, create harmony, bring the dissonant things together, allow them to make sense. As a child of divorce, this is like, this has been my life. And then my other future me value is to don't sell out, hold true to your values, never give them up, especially never trade them for money. My now us, what are my relationships like with my friends? It's about deep time and focus. It's about, I'll have a six hour dinner with you and never look at my phone. On the flip side, if you text me, I might never write back. So I, I also realize like why, like what my, why I'm bad at certain things. 
And my future us, what, what's this larger, bigger picture I'm working towards? It's a better matrix. It's not one where we aren't being directed in certain ways, but it's where those things are really working for us. And so when I make decisions, I'm looking at these spaces and asking like, am I living up to these things? And so to give you one example is I do, I do public speaking and sometimes I get asked to speak for companies that are not my vibe. I've always said no to these things. I, and I feel irrationally angry being invited and I say no. And then this happened and I asked my bento, I thought I, I, I should ask my bento, see what it says. And so when I asked my now me, should I do this talk for a company I don't like? My now me, which says show people the matrix says, yeah, this is what you do, yes. My now us, which says deep time, focus time says an hour and a half to talk about ideas with people. Yeah, that seems cool. Future us, which wants a better matrix says, this is exactly where you need to be. Like, yes, you're not just preaching to the choir. But then I saw this future me voice in this idea of don't sell out. And this voice told me, no, it said, you're only doing this for the money. And suddenly this voice that had stopped me in the past, that had made me feel angry, I could see it's in context. And I recognized that this voice was like a bouncer looking out for my values, this big dude standing outside. But I had the right to tap him on the shoulder and say, no, nah, it's cool. I got this because I could see this larger picture because I could act in a way that was self-coherent. I could, I could change my mind while still being self-coherent because I'm seeing like my full self-interest. So since I've been teaching this to people, I teach workshops and are putting this in people's hands. And, and then maybe the one other application I would say that has really been life-changing, truly life-changing, um, is I've always been a to-do list person. I make a to-do list at the start of each week. And after the book came out, my to-do lists were all about self-promotion. And, uh, and so I was in this trapped in this loop of that. And I had this moment of like, I got, I got to change this. So I wrote, I drew a blank bento and I said, how should I use my energy? So when I answered from a now me perspective, I wrote down like, do a sweepstakes, send more tweets, you know, promise to go nude on a live stream, like whatever it takes, like do it. Uh, <laughs> but my future me voice was like, oh, but you need to read this book to understand this thing more. You need to make these other connections. Like this is, you're not done. My now us voice was like, well, you're, you're supposed to do something with your kid later today. Like, shouldn't you be thinking about that? Also, what about your friendships? And then my future us voice reminded me that like, the reason I wrote the book is Bentoism and this larger idea. So why am I focusing on the thing that's already over? Like I, I have so much work to do. Why am I wasting it on looking for affirmation? So I made a, a new to-do list off of that. And this to-do list did have like send a newsletter, but it also had plan a date day with my wife. It had read this book, connect with these organizations, apply for this thing. And so suddenly my, my energy was being directed not just towards errands and my now me work needs, but instead I'm like actively shaping my time to fit what I truly believe and not just myself. I'm, ex I'm expanding my, my footprint and really owning where I truly live. And so that's something I've done every week since for like the seven, seven weeks straight since my wife does it too. And it's an amazing way to like really be in control, having agency over your values and having agency over your time. And through that achieving this phrase, I never thought would be so important to me, but it's become the thing for me, but achieving self-coherence, being true with yourself. I now know how I can be in a flow state at like two o'clock on a Tuesday. Like I can look at this and know what is right for me. 
And wow. uh, for me personally, it's, it's definitely changed my life. It's just so clarifying and it's, it's so much resonance in what you're saying in my body as you're talking, my body's like, yes, yes, this is the truth. This feels right. Um, every choice I love, I wrote down so many notes as you were talking, you said every choice leaves a footprint. Oh my God. Yes. So good. One last thing I want to ask you before you go is I feel the, the main thing that comes up for people is a deep sense of unworthiness they don't feel like they should raise their hand and go sit at that table. When people are in that place and they listen to the show right now and they're going to be like all fired up, but then that thing comes back of like, oh, but I'm not Yancey Strickler. What just comes to you to say to that person who feels unworthy of putting it out in the world? Well, I've always felt that too. I still do. You know, I remember the night like Kickstarter won best startup from TechCrunch Crunchies and I'm in this like massive theater and SF and everyone in there is like someone famous from the internet. And I'm literally sitting in the back corner all by myself because I don't know anybody. And then we win. We win this award. I walk all the way up there. And all I thought was like, I'm from Clover Hollow, Virginia. If only people knew who I really am, you know. But what I would say, what what allowed me to break the cycle, I would say to that person, nobody cares about you. Nobody's thinking about you. You have this story where People are waiting for you to fail and you're the center of the narrative. Everyone is too busy thinking about themselves. And so if you fail, they've already forgotten. They never even knew you tried. Mm -hmm. And so this saboteur voice is like the single worst reason to not do something. And so for me, it's just like the dance, like nobody's watching kind of, kind of notion of just like the stories we tell ourselves are not true. Mm -hmm. And also everyone is telling themselves some version of that same story. We're all like, you know, erected walls around ourselves that are all strikingly the same. And we think ours are all unique. And so, so to just, just to accept it, accept yeah, that everyone so else is true. thinking the same thing. And then, and then that becomes liberating. I mean, my, like my new year's resolution for this year is to be comfortable stepping into my power. That's a hard, mm. that's always been a hard thing for me. But you know what my theme song is? My theme song for this is the rapper Future, his track Mask Off. And I'm just like, I just need to be mask off because who cares? It's only me. One last thing, because it came up so much. You're a person who really values the human connection, the sincerity, the intimacy that you can create, the, the real substance of what we do here on the planet. And at the same time, the thing that you launched brought in money. Money yep. was made so that people could do things. And you talked about having that sort of inner conflict with yourself. I know that well. And my listeners, I think, are those people. For some reason, we have a lot of shame around it. We don't see, we see it as mutually exclusive. I either get to be a good person or I get to make money. But you created a platform for people to feel that they could step into their power mm -hmm. and put it out there and ask for money in a way that felt like it was filled with integrity. So mm -hmm. how have you learned that that doesn't mean it's one or the other? Yeah, well, people getting satiated, getting sec financial security is like so important. I was 30 when I made $50,000 in a year for the first time. And it was, it was truly life-changing. Like I was no longer afraid to answer my phone or go to the ATM, right? You know, like that was like my life with money until that point. And then 
I got a job where I got paid $50,000 for the first time. And it was like, you know, it's another moment. You just get to breathe a bit easier. So like someone trying to get there, you're not wrong. Like you put your oxygen mask on first for sure. But I mean, I think that the answer is just to know yourself, like is to know yourself because I, the way that like, I was afraid to give speeches for money before because I worried I was betraying something about myself, but you know what? I only felt that because I didn't really know everything that was going on in me. I was reacting to like my first, my first level reaction and not, I didn't, hadn't interrogated myself enough to go to like the second level of what's really going on. So I think that say discomfort with money might be just a reflection of like a not knowing yourself. For me, I think that was ultimately the case, but as someone, you know, I grew up very much without money. And so it's a friend of mine said like, we feel comfortable achieving the same level of status that we had as children. But if you go above that, you kind of feel guilty. If you're a certain kind of person, like you just, you, it's a struggle. That's true. E- even, even as my access to, to capital changed, my attitude towards money stayed the same for probably another 10 years, right? Until like the last year when I've sort of gotten a better handle on myself. Knowing yourself is the biggest gain you, you know you can make. Yeah, that was really brave of you to share that. When Daniel Pink was here, he was saying that if you don't make the sale, if you don't give that speech, you are unethical. He said, because if you can do something that makes a difference for someone else, you, he said, you are morally obligated. Stop talking about yourself and go serve. So like, mm. get out of your own way. And I was like, preach. I was like, wow. That, I mean, especially coming from him, who's a person of yeah. like a lot of substance. So Um, I think, you know, everything you just said is so true. It's an incredible gift that you spent all this time with us and shared so much of yourself with us. Tell us where we can find you, where we can get your book, where we can be on the train with you. Yeah, I'm I'm online at whystrickler, first initial, last name.com, whystrickler.com. You could also go to bentoism.org. There's like a experience where you build your bento. Um, and it's that. a very trippy, trippy, cool site. I would highly encourage you to check it out. And then the book is called, this could be our future, a manifesto for a more generous world. It's available at an independent retailer or an online store near you. Thank you so much for being you and being here. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Kathy. How amazing is he? I love chatting with him. Okay. Here are the takeaways. Number one, create an ethos and commit to it keep the value in the community. Number two, you can never ask a customer to give you more without giving something in exchange. Number three, people support you based on a human connection. Number four, the farther along you are, the greater your reach. Number five, let your body tell you what's right. Number six, grow the mustache, change who you are, step into the unafraid version of you and liberate yourself from the old story. And number seven, every choice we make has a footprint on the now me, the future me, the now us and the future us see beyond right now and make room for tomorrow. I am so aware of how much you have on your plate and how busy you are. And it means the world that you're here listening to the show. So thank you so much. There's so many awesome episodes coming up. So make sure you subscribe on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you had a breakthrough from this episode or any episode, then please do me a favor. And right now, tell a friend, tell someone who you think could benefit from these conversations. There's so much that's possible when we just help another person to see something new, you know, and to see that maybe what they feel is valid. 
I love you guys. I'll leave you with a song of mine. If you want to apply for the Glow Retreat, there's a few spots left. We're taking applications until February 9th. And uh, I can't wait to see who's going to be with me at my home in March. I'll talk to you guys Monday. The podcast is a production of Authentic. For more info on advertising in this show, visit AuthenticShows.com. So